3: Hello
1: and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex gallen The first triple header of Formula One 2020 is in the books, and it ended with a clean sweep for Mercedes as Lewis Hamilton utterly dominated the Hungarian Grand Prix. But it was far from calm in his wake. In fact, there was drama before the start, with Max Verstappen crashing on his way to the grid as the field took in early sighters following an early afternoon shower. Somehow, Red Bull fixed his car in time for the start, and he leapt up the order as the pack charged through the spray. Valtteri Bottas lost out big time from second on the grid by moving before the lights went out, but he apparently didn't trigger the sensor in his grid spot and avoided a penalty but still lost several positions as a result. With Hamilton in control up front, the fight for the other podium spots became about Bottas' recovery as Verstappen used his time in the lead early on to jump racing points Lance Stroll. Mercedes opted to pit Bottas for a third time and he ran out of laps to pass Verstappen in what was a tense finale behind Hamilton. Elsewhere, Alex Albon recovered to 5th behind Stroll, Sebastian Vettel performed well on his way to 6th place despite a late slip that let the Red Bull by and Daniel Ricciardo starred with a long first stint for Renault. But arguably the biggest surprise of the day came from Haas which earned a point with Kevin Magnussen after the American team pitted both of its cars at the end of the formation lap to take slicks and they leapt up the order at the start as a result. Although both cars faded back through the race, Magnussen hung on to take ninth on the road, which became 10th when it transpired that that inspired formation lap call was actually against the rules. So let's dive into the race, which ended with Hamilton now leading the championship by 5 points over Bottas. And with me to do that are Stuart Codling and Luke Smith. And live from Hungary is Jonathan Noble. Gentlemen, let's start with Lewis Hamilton. And I'm going to come to Stuart Codling first. 90 poles now for Lewis Hamilton. Another amazing victory that included some great Great laps in the wet early on. How do you rate his performance this weekend?
4: Pretty good, really. Pretty Once, good. That's
1: a bit. That's a bit harsh, I think. So, so, so
4: Alex wants
3: his. Alex wants to know his score. This is what he's fishing for. <laughs> yeah, so I need. To, I need some help with the with the ever popular driver ratings.
4: Um, going to have to be another ten. Uh, I, I think. Are, are we going for down? Nine points? Down right, he is. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, uh, there's, there's 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 the trouble with this Grand Prix is there's not much to say about Lewis apart from brilliant. You know, great weekend. Um, every lap. Just just brilliantly executed, put the car on pole, um, led away, had the little debate at the end. There was a little bit of, you know, Lewis can be a little bit chuntery when he's feeling the pressure a little bit, and there's a little bit of friction between him and the pit wall about tyres and things like that. And you sort of sense that he feels he's under the cosh, even though he's about... 20 years up the road and already qualifying for the second Silverstone race but um, the, it was very interesting that even while all that was going on he was thinking about how he could bag that point for fastest lap. so he was asking about the soft tyres and when they said no they'll grain within three laps obviously they had further dialogue and decided to do it anyway three or four laps from the end and even though they sent him out into traffic and I, I made a note in my notebook saying you know, unlikely that he'll be able to get fastest lap when he's been put behind that little train. Somehow he found the space to to do it while passing traffic. So pretty remarkable. And then I think was it the last lap? Last lap of the race was actually his fastest lap. So yeah, he, he did
1: it twice, but ended up with the the final fastest lap on the final lap of the
4: race. So you know he'd, he'd already. Got it in the bag, but then he put it beyond all doubt, which was pretty incredible. So I I think what we're looking at here is is a driver who really does live up to their reputation week in, week out at the moment.
1: Indeed, he said he didn't leave anything on the table when I asked if, uh, if if we'd seen everything from the Mercedes car that it has in its pocket. Um, but Luke, can you just explain what happened with Mercedes and that late stop? Because there were pictures of the the, the, the mechanics all in the pit lane, ready to come in for soft tyres, and they went back out, so back in and then back out again, and then obviously called in. So, what was the team's explanation for that uh, slight confusion?
5: Yeah, it was all quite. Um unclear what they were doing and even within the team itself um, Pete Bonington Lewis's race engineer said that oh I stand by I've got to check myself what's going on and it turned out that Mercedes were they were looking at that free pit stop because he had built such a huge lead over Max Verstappen uh, to wear off any possible safety car that might come out late on and that would obviously cause a lot of issues um they initially were going to put Lewis on the hard tyre but he said no I I want the soft I want to go for this fastest lap um Hamilton spoke after the race and said that he felt he deserved that opportunity because ultimately Boss Ass had um done three stops so therefore he wanted to do three stops as well he wanted that chance to sort of have have that kind of equality and he said that he's lost the championship by a point before in 2007 so he didn't want to leave anything on the table and uh, yeah in the end Mercedes sort of got got everything together and managed to bring him in in time um, came out with a five second buffer over Verstappen despite the traffic managed to still put in the two fastest laps, as you mentioned uh, Toto said after the race that it's definitely something Mercedes can learn from because their communication wasn't 100% spot on there um, but that I Again, that kind of speaks to why mercedes have been so successful in f1 throughout this period like even a little thing such as when do we come in what tire do we fit to go for the fastest lap point moment already leading by 20 seconds and to put the trust in the team to execute that because they didn't need to pit at all like they they risked i don't know a wheel gun error or an issue on entry or something like that uh throwing away the whole race win with something that was quite unnecessary but Mercedes had such faith in the team that they were able to get that pulled off perfectly and afterwards look at it and go okay, it wasn't exactly as we wanted it to be with the communication and uh, they reckon they can learn from that so uh, yeah, it really capped off just a very mighty display from Lewis all weekend long I think he's been in a league of his own um, to lead any race by 20 seconds is just unheard of and uh, yeah, little bonus pit stop at the end and get the fastest lap just to make it a real perfect uh, full 26 points
1: Yeah, it was interesting. It was quite a a fairly steady stop as Mercedes sort of took its time, made sure it got everything perfectly. But it did remind me, I think it might have been at the end of FP1 after, I think it was that session, whichever session it was when uh, I got deafened by Sky F1's decision to send its commentators outside for some ridiculous reason, frankly. Uh, But anyway, Hamilton's coming in at the very end of the session and nearly nearly loses it. He's on the limit. He goes, nearly goes into the barriers. So had that happened in the race, obviously it would have been a disaster. But John, it's interesting to hear Hamilton talk about things like losing the 2007 title by one point. And just knowing that with this odd season, we don't know how many races we're going to get, he's obviously feeling, right, I need to grab every opportunity I can to get points here because he just doesn't know what's going to happen at the end. So is that is that where his mindset is at then? Well,
3: I think that's Mercedes' mindset. I think that one of the strengths they've had as a team is that complacency hasn't crept in. I mean, Toto Wolf has managed to guide a team that you know doesn't expect to win the next race. Uh, he's somehow got a mentality where They fear they're going to stumble, fear they're going to fail. And at every step along the way, that's just made them stronger and stronger. And they've never fallen off that. Toto talked on Saturday about how the Ferrari engine situation last year, when Ferrari had such advantage, um, you know, made the suspicions about what they were or weren't doing. But it made Mercedes dig deeper. It made them push harder. And I think one of the aspects we've seen this year is that that Mercedes engines taken a step forward, especially in qualifying. I mean, it was unbelievable how quick... Mercedes were on Saturday. Um, so I think this this paranoia is just making sure that everything's covered. But I think we're in a situation now where uh, it will take a freak circumstance, something totally unpredictable or bizarre for Mercedes not to win this championship. And I think unless Valtteri can turn this around very, very quickly, I think we're already looking as though this is Lewis's in the
5: bag.
4: It was the Mercedes 1-2-3-4 on Saturday, wasn't it,
5: basically, after qualifying? And briefly in Q one one two three four five with Mercedes Junior George Russell up there as well.
3: Yeah, one of the best quotes this weekend came from um, Dave Robson uh, Williams, head of head of performance. Or I get so confused with job titles, but head, head
5: of vehicle
1: performance,
3: head know. of vehicle performance. That was it. Um, we're just discussing about um, you know in a, in a real in a normal scenario where teams would be designing a car year by year. Judging by how quick the racing point is now, you know what would a team like Williams have done? Would it have pursued? its own path and kept its own design or is the advantage now of copying a car like the mercedes so grand so great that uh you will be forced to go that go down that route and dave robson called the performance of the the mercedes borderline outrageous so i thought that's quite a good summary of just how quick that Mercedes is!
1: Indeed, Sebastian Vettel also said uh, the racing point of Mercedes cars on another planet, which I also think is pretty much uh, sums it up. But let's uh, let's stick with Valtteri Bottas after what you said there, John. About you know, it doesn't look good already against Hamilton in the title fight because this was a. Uh, this was a disappointing day for Bottas. I've, I've got in my notes here for this podcast that he needs perfection to beat Hamilton, and mistakes like the one he made at the start is ultimately what he cannot afford to do. We know that you know he, he's you know he's 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 trying to be more consistent and to close that gap regularly. Because on his day, he really can take it to Hamilton. But that error at the start, I still can't really get my head around how it didn't trigger the sensor. Because if you if you watch the onboard at the start, he clearly moves past the yellow line before the lights change he says that he was distracted by a light on his dash changing in terms of the uh you know the big led screen on the steering wheel that's what that's what cost him also said that interestingly second on the grid he didn't have a good view of the lights because of where his halo is positioned so you can only sort of see half the lights but nevertheless codders why don't we throw to you what did what did you make of of bottas today and also you know his his charge against verstappen it just it just didn't seem to be Quite what it needed to be. Verstappen even cited last year's race when Hamilton pitted late on and chased him down. Hamilton obviously got by and made made the move, but Bottas didn't. So a weak performance would be safe for Bottas.
4: Yeah, the the excuses were a little bit dog-ate-my-homework, weren't they? And just looking back and reviewing the start, it was quite extraordinary that he didn't trigger the sensors. Obviously, he had come to a halt uh, by the time the lights actually did go off. But he, he had crossed the line, so I, I am surprised that more didn't come of that. I wrote in my notebook Bottas catching Verstappen hand over fist, a second a lap, a, a second and a half a lap, and then all of a sudden uh, Verstappen managed to get a bit of clear air and and, and sort of held him back he was sort of like Atlas holding the world up. It was an extraordinary performance by Verstappen. So I suppose maybe uh, are are we sort of looking at it slightly the wrong way by saying it was a a, a poor or indifferent performance by Bottas and actually that that undersells the the magic that Verstappen worked on old tyres. I think Bottas did a good job. Uh, on, on those tyres it, it, it was it was respectable wasn't Hamilton-esque I'm sure Lewis would probably have in the same circumstances have made it work but uh, Max did a job today uh, it, it, I think obviously when it comes to composing your driver ratings you'll have some woe over how much to demerit <laughs> him for um, tonking it into the wall on his can't have to a, the grid
1: yeah he can't have a perfect score sorry sorry Max and sorry, Max. remember friends, the driver ratings. You cannot crash <laughs> in the way
3: to the grid and get a perfect score But remember, Codders, the drive ratings for the entire weekend.
4: Unlike the the F1 uh, official driver of the race poll, where they they gave it to Max, uh, ignoring that, which is, um, I I have to say, a reason for not actually asking the people what they think.
1: Well, it's interesting what you say about Bottas there. I think that's very well argued in terms of Bottas' performance, just how good Verstappen was. But Luke, I wonder if if I could come to you now. What What did we make of Mercedes' strategy calls here? Because... I was a little bit confused. I'll be honest. Why they pitted him to put him onto the hards quite early? There was still a good chunk of the race to go. Okay, like like what I said, you know, he'd, he'd used the undercut to get past Lance Stroll. He really honed in on Verstappen quite quickly, and they both seem to hit traffic, and that's where Verstappen pulls clear a little bit. And then suddenly the Mercedes is in the pit again. And I was I, I was genuinely like, oh, I, I would have thought they might have given him a little bit longer to try and get close and make the move done. But then again, and then and then as and then as Collier says, that sort of leaves open the factor of Verstappen's brilliance on old tyres in the race so what did Mercedes have to say for itself on that strategy
5: so according to Toso Wolf pissing Bottas was the only chance that they had of snatching P2 away which I guess if you consider as mentioned earlier the strategy that won Lewis the race last year that extra pit stop flew up the order and uh, flew through the field with with that final stint in 2019 on that thinking yes that is true but again I agree like I was quite surprised to see Bottas come in because he didn't seem like he was like really close to Verstappen for, for very long. Like he made good inroads during that um, during that second stint and then sort of like close up to maybe like second, second and a half behind. But then never, like he never went for a pass or got close enough to really attempt anything. So it was weird that he wasn't given that kind of period of time. And I don't know if Mercedes sort of looked at looked at everything and said, well, there's traffic ahead, so let's pit him now. It's This is the only way we can make it work. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was odd that he wasn't given even the chance to try and attack Verstappen. Because like last year, Hamilton had a lot of attempts to get past Verstappen before they went, no, this isn't working, bring him in for another stop and let him go on a charge. Bottas never got that opportunity. So I thought that was, yeah, maybe a bit strange on Mercedes' side in terms of not giving him uh, the chance to even attempt to pass. Uh, in hindsight, you can might maybe say it was a lap too late if they were going to go with the hearts or maybe they should have waited a little bit longer and bolted on some softs or I don't know. Um, what I would say in defense of Bottas and, and for your driver ratings, because I know you need all of this input. <laughs> um, if we are looking at the whole weekend, I thought, I mean, his qualifying lap was astonishing. Like it was genuinely a superb lap, but, Sometimes that isn't enough when your teammate is the greatest qualifier in F1 history. Like it just, it just won't cut it. And I think I'd agree all round that this is this is the kind of weekend that Bottas really needs to avoid. Like it needs to avoid little errors like the jump start because that that ultimately. That ruined his race really. That ruined any chance of, of second or even taking the fight to Lewis for victory. Um and yeah, in the end it was he just wasn't he didn't get the opportunity even to, to try pass on Verstappen. Um partly down to Verstappen's excellent drive as well. But yeah, it's a big opportunity miss for him because it may only be sort of three three or four points when you consider the bonus point as well. But that's still more ground that Bottas really can't afford to lose on Lewis Hamilton.
4: Also, you know, if if we rewind uh, to a couple of places further back on the grid and and look at what happened with last year's Mercedes, um, you you only have to look at how imperfect execution can really scupper a race for a really good car. Um, Perez wheel spinning and scuppering his own uh, P4 grid spot. Stroll, um, you know, uh, slightly turned over by the timing of the pit stops and got stuck behind the Haas cars after that. But once again, it's, it's these little imperfections of execution that can cause you to to fall behind, even if you have a really, really competitive car.
1: Absolutely. But what I will say, I think between the two of you, Codders and Luke, you have uh, you successfully argued Bottas out of the two score, the lower of the two scores that I had roughly jotted down when it comes to. Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm in two minds here. I've got a higher one and a lower one. I mean, they're, they're literally one point difference but anyway you
5: uh, he's, he's saved him from the lower one.
4: We're, we're playing Bruce Forsyth, Forsyth's play your cards right aren't we Luke? <laughs> Higher, <Hiya, laughs> lower. That's a
5: reference I actually get codders well, Wow,
4: wow. Was, was Bruce Forsyth
5: alive when
4: you were alive?
1: Luke is still <laughs> alive just to be clear <laughs> yeah anyway anyway um, I have no idea what you're talking about so moving swiftly on um, John I wanted to ask you obviously in the media centre before the yeah. race what happened? What was the reaction when Max Verstappen was suddenly in the barriers? Because I looked up and I was like, "Is that a replay? Is that something that's happened at another race in the past?" What's- I was momentarily like, "What? That can't be live!" And then it, obviously it was. He, I was like, "Oh, he's on the inters. He's crashed on the way to the grid." So, what was the reaction from, uh, from everybody at the, the track? The, when because
3: it the, the, the media centre has been quite kind of sparse. There were, I think, twenty-two journalists hit. 21 or twenty-two. I can't remember. Someone counted them, but. So it's been quite sparse in the media centre. And because we can't go into the paddock, so there's limited opportunities to go and kind of doorstep people like you would normally do before the race. Everyone's kind of trapped in this box. So the, the banter has been kind of getting up and up and up, especially because our cabin fever gets released tonight and we're finally out of the bubble from tomorrow and can go home and get out. of a long three weeks on the road. So there have been quite, quite a few laughs and giggles and stuff today, various stuff. So and normally um, when incidents happen... Um, the German journalist Michael Schmidt uh, for Automotor Motor and Sport. You know, very brilliant journalist, uh, very experienced, uh, very serious, very diligent, but he is the one who gets most excited when incidents happen on track. So lots of shouting and lots of, whoa! So the second Verstappen was in the barriers today, the whole media centre, almost everybody was. Kind of, whoa, Verstappen, Verstappen. You had all these journalists screaming and shouting and a bit of a kind of mini party thing. But I think that's probably a legacy of three weeks on the road trapped in a box together.
1: Going back to Verstappen and the, the repair job that, Re- that Red Bull did on the grid was absolutely incredible. So it looked like he wrecked the suspension when, you know, the wheel, as he, as he turns uh, as he turns on, he sort of drives over his front wing. It looks like it's completely broken, damaged the track rod, the pull rod, like the whole, it looked like he was out of it, basically. But in, I think he says, 10 to 12 minutes, they, they, they fix everything and it's good to go. He says the mechanics were screaming at each other in terms of how long was left, how long they had to go to get everything, uh, you know, ready for the race start. And and they did it. They pulled it off. Um, you know, Codders, What does that bring to mind? Any any other any other examples of this from F one history we could compare it to?
4: I've had the the privilege of of meeting and playing five a side football with the uh, Red Bull mechanics, and it was every bit as serious as a World Cup final. Uh, this is ten years ago at Bisham Abbey when. Uh, uh, the refueling process was first uh, outlawed, and they were all sent through their drills and processes to uh, make them quicker so that they'd do faster turnarounds. So, and that was a crash course for, for me in, in just how competitive they are. So, no surprise at all that, that they should turn it around so quickly. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever seen a repair job that extensive, that quick on a grid before, although Johnny's raising his hand and he has seen that. Well, no, I no he hasn't, he it, was just was- waving. <laughs>
3: I was going to give a comment about what Christian Horner told us after the race, if you're interested.
4: Oh, I am, yes.
3: So Christian said that that job that they normally would have to do would normally take an hour and a half in the garage. Um, You'd need to take everything off, check everything. So um, massively long job. They had an X-ray machine, he said, onto the the grid to analyse the suspension to check on cracks and and any hidden danger. Um, He says it was completed with 25 seconds to spare. So... It's a bit like Codders writing a feature when he's got a deadline and, you know, he's right up against it and then he files it with 25 seconds to spare. So, as good a job as that. Another thing that springs to mind
4: about the Red Bull mechanics, I ended up in the same mountain bike race as a, as a group of them once. Uh, and... Um, Dear Lord, that wasn't very pretty because there was a time downhill section, and I actually crashed into a tree getting out the way of one of them uh, because uh, he—I I could feel him breathing down my neck. Uh, he had a full—he had a full face helmet with "downhill pervert" written on the back of it. So I, you know, that—that that was me in the tree, and and whoosh—he—he he went by. So yeah, uh, don't, don't don't get in the way of them in a deadline. They are very very serious people.
1: I mean, a portable X-ray machine sounds very sci-fi, very Formula One. That I do, I like that having that having that on the grid. That sounds interesting. Um, but it was a great start as well for Verstappen. While Valtteri Bottas was doing his best to jump the start, um, Verstappen nails it. He, you know, he says he saw sort of the traffic jam happening around uh, around at the inside as everybody got around Bottas, got around Perez. The two Ferraris were lightning quick off the line. Verstappen was like right I'm taking my chances around the outside and that's how he that's how he does it jumps up from seventh to third to run there on the first lap and then Luke what did you make of his of his pace when he got into the lead because Hamilton and Stroll stop in front of him and I thought oh this might this might cost Verstappen here because they're gonna they're they're gonna be on the right tyres but he hits the front nothing in front of him and he just you know he effectively overcuts if that's you know the wrong word but you know he he uses these pacing in in free air to to get ahead of, of Stroll so what did you make of those early
5: laps? Yeah, I like the word overcut. I don't know if that's in the autosport style guide. Yeah, I, part, I thought it's, codders it's would shaking.
3: jump in and be disapproving.
5: He's shaking Over, his head. Over, you know, overcut's
3: I've, standard F1 language, isn't it, though?
4: Yeah, it's it's in here. I, funnily enough... Over, you have I've,
3: overcuts and undercuts. You do. Yeah, under, undercut is fine, me. but I thought overcut would be... No, uh, no overcut you know, is, uh, cor- is correct. Overcut's
1: correct.
4: Oh, but oh,
5: yeah, yeah that's, that,
1: that's it's fine, but it's, it's it's whether we allow it in the style guide. That's
5: the question here. Is it's that a printed copy of the style guide, then, Coders?
4: It is. Um, I went into the office recently to, uh, obeying social distancing guidelines, to uh, pick up my my all singing, all dancing new computer, and um, and I I picked up this example of the style guide, which I, th- I think it might be the um, GP racing style guide. Um, as, as it whirls, um, it has things such as the correct se- spelling of Marmite, Luca de Montezemelo, uh, movable, Montrich Park, correct Catalan spelling, split infinitives, avoid these if possible, Dashes, italics, subject, verb, object, something lots of writers ought to um, keep in mind. Uh, be, I be or gen- me. Be gentle here, codders. Who or whom, less or fewer, tenses, compare with or compare to. I know there are some people who don't get that right. Overcut is not in this <laughs> style guide, but then again, neither is undercut. So perhaps this style guide does need to be updated.
1: Well, I appreciate that journey we went on there, if nothing else, because now I know. There we go. Mm. It was not even, not even included. So, Luke, back to Max Verstappen. <laughs> How did you rate his pace in the early laps?
5: Uh, I thought he got the overcut brilliantly on Stroll. Oh, don't on start Stroll. this again. <laughs> uh, it, was, no, it, it was great. And again, I thought the same as you, that when they kept him out and it was kind of cool seeing him go from binning it to leading the race into the space about half an hour. Um, it did look like the wrong decision, given that everyone else was coming in. The Haas drivers who did pit on the formation lap, they were lighting up the timing sheets. And it seemed likely that, yeah, Red Bull had kind of missed the boat a little bit. But no, he, he was absolutely superb um, for that sort of brief, very brief spell on the intermediates. Managed to pit, get the jump on, uh, on Stroll and the Haas guys, which was superb. And uh, I think that really set set up his race because he was sort of able to then sort of eke out a, a nice buffer during the early uh, stint on the slicks uh, as they kind of had the the. Um the sort of log jam of all the cars behind, um, everyone stuck behind the, the, the Haas drivers that, that kind of built up. And that meant that once Stroll did get clear, that Verstappen was already well out of sight. So that meant, yeah, P2 was looking always pretty comfortable um, from that point. So I really, but a really impressive drive at the beginning. And he said after the race, like, were there any issues with the car? And he said, no, it was like new, it was fine. And it just incredible to, I think, not only Red Bull's repair job, but also the for Verstappen to have that confidence after such a, a very sort of basic error on the reconnaissance lap that you should not be making to then think like right, get your head in the game it's a wet track I'm going to deal with this I'm going to still absolutely smash it and that's what he did so I think full credit to him for that. I'm
4: fascinated to see what his rating is at the end of this from Alex the Bible the
1: the crash sort of continued on what had been an underwhelming disappointing tough weekend for Red Bull John I mean what do you think that what do you think about Verstappen's performance does this does this disguise what's going on at Red Bull and the sort of struggles that they're they're having or did they did it sort of just is it just that it's tougher over one lap and seems to come alive in the race
3: yeah, I think the end the end result if you look at the, the time difference at the finish line doesn't look as devastating as it would have been had Lewis not stopped for the tires. You know, I think he would have finished, you know, 25 30 seconds ahead on a on a track conditions we saw today that normally you could expect Max to excel in and be up there with Lewis. So to fall that far behind and 30 seconds is a massive golf in Formula 1. Um I spoke to Christian Horner tonight you know, just generally the feedback on the car and he admits <clears throat> there's some weird anomalies there that they don't understand. So something something in that car isn't working. Um so you need to go away now, get back to Milton Keynes and try and work out exactly what it is. Um we know the car is nervous on the edge. We've continued to see these spins that we saw in pre season testing. We saw them last weekend in Austria. And you know, all the way up until this weekend the you know both drivers have said, No, no, no there's no problem. It's just part of finding the limit. But I think finally this weekend, Max admitted, yeah, all, all cars on the edge, you know, you, they are nervous and, and have the the risk of spinning. But here, once it goes, it's gone, and there's nothing you can do to catch it. So there is a problem there. There's a lack of confidence. I think gets magnified on single laps when, when they've got to push it to the edge and take it to the edge. Within the race, you're not, you know, every lap, you're not flat out. You're managing tyres, you're managing fuel, you're managing pace. Um, it's much more, it's a different approach. And I think that's where the, the Red Bull excels a bit better but that Golf to Mercedes is massive um, there's no two ways about it Mercedes has got a very strong engine um, it's got brilliant aerodynamics it's got a driver two drivers who feel fully confident and comfortable in that car I mean you can't see Red Bull winning a race on pace at the moment unless it finds something dramatically different or there is some some simple element of this car that they and finally think ah, oh, this is the problem and it gets transformed
5: I'm going to tempt fate here but this it, it could end up being a perfect season for Mercedes, which is remarkable to think. And I think that for a team that has broken every record, seemingly in F1, doing the, the six consecutive um, constructors and driver championship doubles, to find new realms and new ground in which they can break records, I think is really astonishing. And I think that's one that maybe, I mean, you you would never, ever get an answer from Toto or Lewis or Valtteri saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's what we're aiming for." Because they'd always tell it, "Oh well, there's bound to go wrong at some point, and always downplay things. Um, but they, that that I think is what has got to be in sight this year. I mean, Short's calendar that much of an advantage, it would be an astonishing thing to achieve.
1: On on that exact point, Luke John, you and I joked about this at the end of our podcast on Thursday. In that, with the way the calendar now looks, all of the tracks where you would traditionally expect Red Bull to do well—Monaco, Singapore, Mexico. Are gone, so it, Mercedes, it, it, you know it, the pressure is now on for it to, to produce a perfect score because all the tracks seemingly will play to it play to its
3: strengths. Although judging by the Red Bull pace this weekend, they're probably glad that there's not more hungarians on the on the circuit because actually we're, we're less competitive here than in Austria. So you know, may, maybe we'll find out that we get a Silverstone, which is a much higher speed track, still you know relatively high downforce. Uh, you need a you know, very strong, well-performing car. There, maybe, maybe it will be better. Maybe it's the low-speed um, corners. It's not very, actually, very strong out or very stable at. Because we saw Max's spins in Barcelona testing were mostly at the chicane. Don't um, tend to be losing it in high speed. It's the slower speed stuff where they're losing it. So maybe things will, will step forward in Silverstone. But, but what would be quite amusing on Luke's point is the way the calendar. You know, the way we're getting a calendar rolled out. You know, three or four races at a time because you, you can't plan much more than that at the moment, that we'll get these eight races or 11 races done and in the bag, and then they'll win all those races. And then, okay, we'll add three more on. Maybe we'll see someone else win, and they win those three as well. And we just keep going till F1 gives up and says, okay, it's yours.
4: It's the calendar equivalent of the magician pulling the hanky out of someone's pocket, isn't it? <laughs> oh, there's some more. Uh, the, the the interesting thing about to me about Toto's point earlier in the weekend – where he was saying about how they'd kind of broken themselves uh, to excel under pressure from Ferrari is what... What now is the effect of having broken so far clear of your opposition that you you don't actually have someone breathing down your neck anymore? How do you how do you prioritise? When when you've got someone when you've got another team pushing you really hard and you've got an idea of where their strengths are, that gives you an idea of of what you have to do to neutralise that. But if you don't, um, where where do you stick your resources? Where, especially when you're looking at a whole new generation of cars in 2022.
3: But I had a theory pre-season about the whole DAS, why Mercedes had been so open about it and why had the team been so open about the changes they made to the car and the steps they made. And the theory was that they basically wanted to nail this championship as early as possible, uh, make the rivals think that they're out of touch so they can then switch their attention as early as possible to what would have been 2021 but is now 2022, basically. It's in Mercedes' advantage to switch all its focus as quick as it can. So... The sooner it can nail this championship and get it done and dusted the sooner it can make gains because it knows the budget caps coming in the restrictions are coming in these new era rules are coming in so you know maybe there's a game being played pre-season about let's ram home how much we've got how big advantage is. let's really attack these first races and you know let's not pretend that there's much entertainment here we don't want to win by half a second because we've seen teams do this in the past have a dominant car hide your pace just keep winning by three, four seconds all the time and all that. Whereas here we're seeing an utterly dominant Mercedes. That, you know Lewis on pole in Austria by one point two seconds. Here, here they're well clear of everybody. So maybe there's a game being played here.
1: And and that advantage carries on to next year now as well because of the coronavirus cost saving measures. Twenty twenty one will be the W eleven part two, I guess you know, essentially it's carried over and see if he can win every race in that season. Obviously, we don't know what's going to happen with this one in terms of the future, but nevertheless, that looks likely. And as you say, Mercedes will be able to put its focus on to 2022. Now, another, another interesting car to throw into that sort of point is the racing point because of course it's advantage that it suddenly has although remains under threat by the Renault protest and Renault again protested in exactly the same way as it did last week because he wants to know you know whether that's legal or, or what not but um Cottes want I wanna, wanna come on come to you what did you make of Lance Stroll's drive today because on paper pretty good P4 good result for him but I still I still feel like racing Point should be disappointed that it still doesn't have a podium with that car but then again Verstappen was incredible that's appeared to be the difference.
4: Yeah, my feeling was that he he drifted off in sort of the second phase of the race. So he was competitive for a bit. He did radio towards the end of his his first stint on slicks to say that he was starting to struggle a little bit on the tires. But I, I, I he he was he was in touch then. He he was still in touch, but in in the latter phase of the race he just disappeared off and where are we if if I can squint and see how far off he was. Um you know the interval. He was he was a minute off um, the 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 leader. So when you think how close they were in qualifying, um, that 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 gap just disappeared. It all happened in the second phase of the race when he was making slightly heavy weather of, of, of getting by a few people. Maybe traffic was a was a problem. I, I know that to, to begin with, obviously he. After that first phase of pit stops, he ended up behind the Haas cars, so he had to get by them, which involves taking a little bit of life out of your tyres, which put him at a bit of a disadvantage. But at the same time, yeah, it was a bit of a missed opportunity, I think. And of course, Perez had been disadvantaged by his poor start, so he was always, in the words of um, Henry Kelly on a program called Going for Gold that many listeners will be too young to remember. Be playing catch up.
1: Yeah, I don't, <laughs> don't know what that is. But anyway, Johnny just, remembers just, Going for Gold. Oh, just just on that, on that point, on that point, uh, God, is about the gap Stroll has at the end. You're right, it is. It's 57.5 seconds, but that doesn't take into account Hamilton's stop he would have been another 20, 25 mm. seconds behind. He would have been well over a minute behind. So, yeah, uh, a, uh, a very big gap for Strong.
4: I, I was looking at those gaps. Fortunately, I remembered to charge my iPad this week. And, um, yeah, he was, he was just going off at about half a second a time. The, the, the laps were, were just going. So he was, he was leaking time. If if that's possible, we should probably ask Doctor Who about that. This is a reference that will not go over the heads of many us. Oh, I, I'm interested in
3: Doctor Who, Doctor Who thing today.
4: Oh, yeah, you didn't realise that Daleks had been able to go upstairs <laughs> no, I just, since 1988, I haven't
3: followed, Johnny. Because I haven't followed Doctor Who for years. So with the podium moving upstairs, I just said a tweet saying, are they going to get those podium bots? How are they going to get up the stairs to be stuck like the Daleks? And I was quickly corrected that Daleks can get upstairs and can fly. So... Yeah, I think Daleks
4: Daleks have been able to get upstairs since um, one of Sylvester McCoy's final series when uh, the cliffhanger was him running up a set of stairs and going, ha ha, and then it comes up after him.
1: Do you know know what? I find Doctor Who immensely irritating. I always used to get very annoyed when, you know, at Christmas, people would insist on putting that on the TV. I actually think, why? Why on earth? So what I'm going to do is move on to something I'd like to talk about, which is... Hike Seven. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely not. It's Haas and that that incredible race, all made from an illegal call on the formation lap. And actually, Luke, you and I were sort of uh helping our autosport.com colleagues out on their on the live coverage that we provide on autosport.com. And uh we were saying, you know, what tires they were starting on, and it was absolutely baffling that Kevin Magnussen actually left the grid on the extreme wet tyre. And he you know, he radios into the team, it immediately goes, We've made a mistake here, there's a dry line. And then he goes further around the lap. They're like, okay, yep, just stay out. We'll see what happens. They're like, no, come in, box now, box now. And it uh, goes onto the goes into the mediums. waits at the end of the pit lane, as does Roman Grosjean behind him, and they're into the race. It's incredible, you, you know. If it's if possible, have a look at his his onboards from the early early stages. He's really wrestling with the with the car on the on the slippy track, of course. But it works. An absolute treat. They're right up the order. They're running third and fourth behind Hamilton and Verstappen when once everybody's come in, and just just tremendous, just a tremendous call. It seems. But as we know now, ultimately cost them 10 seconds because they're penalised post-race. Both cars do slide backwards. Magnussen does well to hang on to his point in 10th place. But yeah, Luke, what did you what did you make of Haas today?
5: I thought it was a great result. Like I actually, I asked uh, Gunther Steiner on Thursday and said that, look, you, it's so tight down at the bottom and you've you've got very much this sort of firm lower midfield now of um, Haas, Afromeo and Williams. And uh, I asked Steiner and said like, look, Alvaro Mayo picked up those two points in the first race in Austria, and it's crazy. Are you worried that could settle like that? bottom end of the championship. Line, and it'd be a point this year. And he said, oh, it's too early to say any of that. But it's kind of been... I was kind of looking at the season saying, well, unless we get another crazy race, then surely points are going to be actually quite difficult for Haas to, to get, given how competitive that upper midfield is. Uh, but it takes something like that, where you really roll the dice and take a huge gamble. Uh, we heard other teams considering it. Daniel Kvyat, he was asking to come in, but didn't in the end. Uh, and Haas pulled an absolute masterstroke. And yet it did cost them 10 seconds on both cars. But, I mean, even with that, Magnussen, he wouldn't have finished 10th under any any other conditions. So, an absolutely brilliant call by the team. Um, obviously, you think back to the very first race, um, when uh, very first two races, sorry, even, uh, when it was titles that absolutely magicked up some big points hauls. And I think this was a similar kind of just roll the dice, see what happens. And it works an absolute treat. So I think a lot of credit needs to go to the team for, for pulling that off. And also, I think to both drivers for not... Um, capitulating completely down the order, like they really held their own um, as much as they could, and um, for Bankston to come away with a point, I think, is uh, hard earned.
4: Gunter did say that going onto wet tyres was Kevin's decision, so I don't know if that was just buck passing, but it just it just seemed very weird based on what conditions were like, and even just looking at the track as they went to the grid, Kevin managed to hang on. Uh, Roman Grosjean didn't, although uh, Gunter also said that uh Roman lost lost downforce after making contact with Albon when Albon came past him and actually you could see a little bit of Haas wing uh sitting uh on the track at, at turn one for quite a while after that uh, he also said that Roman struggled a lot more on the c2 tyres and if if you look they only pitted a lap apart um Magnussen and Grosjean and it was after that they'd been quite in they'd been in close proximity up until that point and after that pit stop and particularly after the contact with Albon was when Grosjean went backwards, which, which suggests that, um, for once a, a someone in a team wasn't speaking to us with forked tongue.
3: Haas's strategist was, um, out cycling in Austria last week after the star Styrian Grand Prix, um, had an accident, broke his arm, had to fly home, uh, for an operation. So that strategy call today was partly influenced by, a, an injured strategist, Back at base, basically. Maybe, so maybe he
4: um, hit a tree when he was being overtaken <laughs> by a bunch of Red Bull mechanics.
3: <laughs> but on on this point about
1: Haas, Luke, you called it a, you called it a masterstroke. as you said it's inspired. And on the face of it, I agree with you. But F1's race director, Michael Massey, has said that in, in essential terms, the only communication that can be made from the driver during the formation lap is for safety matters. If Haas knew that it was illegal going in and it just thought, well, we'll get a 10 second penalty, doesn't matter, well, it's worth it. Is it still an inspired call if it if it was an illegal call, if you see my point?
4: Well, it's irrelevant now because it happened. It's not
1: irrelevant, Codders, because if all the drivers had come in at the end of the formation lap, then it would have been complete chaos, would it not?
4: It would have been. However, it happened. And you what you have to look at is how the race panned out, which is that those two cars pitting on the formation lap had quite a big effect on what happened behind them. You know everything from stroll backwards in that race was influenced by the has cars and the time they pitted. So if you were going to punish them. Uh, it should have been done straight away and not afterwards because the, the punishment is axiomatically meaningless. Handing them a time penalty is is pointless because it, it, the, the actions that they took at that point affected the strategies of everyone behind them and, and they had a big effect on, on every position south of them. So I'd, I'd say it was a bit of a toothless penalty and if you're going to go after someone uh, for, for making a call like that, do it at the time, hawk them off the racetrack, uh, do do whatever. Don't let them spoil everyone else's race because uh, the, the the punishment is irrelevant now.
1: It did seem to be quite an interesting explanation that the FIA offered, in that there was a technical directive that was cited, has cited it in their defence, that so that didn't apply. So it's interesting. It's just interesting there. Do you think, so what do we think of the stewards' decisions today? Because obviously there's that, and then there's the the weird Bottas no penalty. So a bit of an interesting one for the for for the for the officials, as it were.
5: I think the Bottas one. I mean, that's that was a precedent set. Uh, there has been a couple of cases in recent years. I think Sebastian Vettel at Suzuka last year, Carlos Sainz here in Austria last year as well. I want to say where these drivers have they pretty clearly jumped the start, but because of, of this sensor and because they've not triggered the sensor, there's just nothing said. And like everyone was asking, well, where's like even the incident being noted or investigated by the stewards? And we got absolutely no reference or. Acknowledgement of Bottas making that early move uh, from from race control because ultimately they they use a system where oh if there's no sensor trigger, then he didn't jump the start and that's it so yeah I think that was that, that was maybe a bit strange but I think that the FIA when it comes down to sort of making those decisions and trying to be so official in terms of did he or didn't he that might be where they sort of say well it's got to be down to a sensor as opposed to uh, anything else. I don't know.
3: On the has tyre thing, I think maybe that rule needs relooking really looking at. I mean, when it originally came out, it was that era where the engineers were telling the drivers everything, that the formation lap was about, you know, have this clutch setting and this bite point and this revs and pull this button and do this and that, and it got too much. So that was where that intention came on. But one of the great moments of a motor race is when there are mixed conditions and there some teams want to roll the dice and make this gamble on pit stops and we get these weird things I mean who will ever forget that 2007 European Grand Prix if it was called that because the Nürburgring title kept changing but when Marcus Winklehock you know made that they rolled the dice uh switched the wet tires as the rain came down and he led that race these these are the the moments that you know are spectacular in all motor racing uh so I think it perhaps should be excluded from this that that's sort of call because it's not really a you know there's not really a driver aid if you're altering strategy or something you're not actually telling the driver how to drive or anything like that so maybe maybe it's a rule that should be looked at the
4: and also on, on in terms of the jump start um Vettel was moaning about it on his team radio so it was obviously it had been brought to the attention of someone and, and perhaps have been deemed not worthy of, of further attention because it would stopped again before the lights went out. And I'd, I'd imagine... I'd- obviously there's a protocol where it has to be announced that you're investigating but e- even if it were to be investigated you would probably look at it and say actually he hasn't benefited from that jump start he's actually inconvenienced himself because he stopped he's gone into anti-stall and um so he, he's actually in jumping the start not gained an advantage so it's it's not worth f- further punishment
1: worth asking a question maybe at the silverstone race just because he's clearly gone beyond that uh, that yellow line where the sensor is so an, an interesting one to follow up on and um, but let Let's move on to the other Red Bull driver, Alex Albon. Another tough weekend for him, even though he finishes fifth, which is, you know, still a decent result, but behind a racing point. Just the Gulf to Verstappen again this weekend is just even more evident. But what was really interesting was some comments made by one of his friends, a driver at a rival team, Williams, George Russell, saying that he's being made to to look like an idiot in that in the current situation at Red Bull. What did we make of that?
4: There are some people who say that um he finished p6 a lap down there's a lot of people drawing parallels between his uh, his finishing position or where he was when they composed that tweet um and pierre gasly's position last year and you can't compare like with like cuz uh, last year gasly in theory you know should have been there and wasn't and and created a big space but because he fell back quite early on uh alban had a, a tricky qualifying didn't work out for him and both red bull drivers struggled so he he missed q3 so obviously this was an issue for him so he he that that was why he couldn't be there so you you can't really compare uh Gasly with albon in, in that regard uh and I, th- I think he actually made quite a good fist of coming back what what you have to say is that that is a difficult car and and there's a that there is a gap between the really, really good drivers and the people who are just good, and, and I think Alex Albon's a, a, a very good racing driver. His problem is that he's he's next to Max Verstappen, who's definitely a great racing driver, but also someone around whom the efforts of the team coalesce. And that there's a lot to be said for the argument that maybe there's a little bit too much focus on one side of the garage with with that team, and that. is is a problem and it's not the other driver that is the problem
1: well Luke what did you make of uh, George Russell's comments which uh, seemed to wind up Max Verstappen somewhat in the aftermath of qualifying
5: yeah they did a little bit and I don't think Max fully understood the the context of what George was saying because he was sort of defending Albon and uh, Max snapped back and said well he should talk about his own team he shouldn't be talking about other people's teams or whatever Uh, so uh, yeah I I think context is irrelevant yeah Absolutely, yeah. and I think I think that I think George was spot on. I mean, Alex has been so good through through all of his career, and obviously we we know the struggles he's been through. But I mean, he's the man who pushed Charles Clerk for the GP three title in twenty sixteen. It's nice seeing the two of them sort of rekindling that kind of battle for a little bit on track today, uh, and then a Red Bull. Yeah, I mean, he's not been he's not been on Max Verstappen's level, but as has said, like A, who is, and B, that team is built around max and i think what we're seeing at the moment is max is outstripping the qualities of of that car and Alwyn maybe isn't quite reaching what the reaching the potential of what that car is capable of but again this is this is his second full season f1 he's not even been with red bull a a full year yet so it's going to take time it is a tricky car it's not very forgiving um and i think it's it's just going to take a bit of time for him to get up to speed but i think that already I, don't, I think the comparisons with what Gasly went through last year, I, they are premature and I think they're unfair because I think with Gasly, we saw he was thrown in the deep end with a lot of pressure and he just didn't deliver. And I think Hungary last year was the race where he wasn't there for Max and Max probably would have won if he had a rear gunner. Alban came in and was much more relaxed and much more just very sort of chilled out about everything. And that really translated into his on-track performances and Alex has sort of kept all of that approach through this early part of the season as well. And talking to him after qualifying, said like, "How do you pick yourself up? Like, get disheartened about a result like that?" And talks about George's comments as well. And he he said, "But it's just time. Like, I know these things will take time, and I've got the confidence I can bounce back." And we didn't we didn't have that from Gasly last year. Like, it was much more negative. So, yeah, I think that. I think Alex can take a lot of heart from his battle through the field today. I think that from his good position to beat the Ferraris, to beat one of the racing points, I think that was a real good effort. And uh, yeah, I think that once Red Bull can kind of get on top of these issues with the car and give it a little bit more time with him as well, I think he he will come good.
3: You've also got to think of it from the team perspective as well, because there's you know a whole world that exists behind closed doors in motorhomes and in engineering rooms and in the garages that we never see and you speak to anyone at Red Bull um, about, you know, what Alex does and the feedback he gives, his understanding of the car, how he motivates people and works with people. And they rave about him. Um, Paul Monaghan from Red Bull said last week, you know, he has this incredible ability to, you know, give such detailed feedback on what the car's doing, how it's performing, what needs to be done. And this this is the thing we don't see. Um, so basically you've got a very tricky car um, for a relatively inexperienced driver uh, going up against a a once-in-a-generation young talent who's got a lot of experience. So, you know, you can't expect things to go very well. And look at um, Charles Leclerc. He had a great second season and a very strong Ferrari. This year, the Ferrari's fallen back a bit. He's in the midfield, had a difficult race today. Last weekend, um, you know, if you judged him on a normal thing and that sort of error he made last weekend, um, you know, he'd have been criticised and slated and said he wasn't ready for Ferrari. So... A lot of the time, you're it's difficult to judge the job a driver's doing because so much is based on where that car fits into the pack.
5: And I think Alex's evolution as well, not only during his time in F1, but over the the past couple of years, it's incredible. Like I I first interviewed him, I uh, believe, it, at a Formula E rookie test. I think it was literally that Dams had a seat and they were like, "Well, Alex on our books, so let's just put him in there," and he he was he. Just, like struggling to even get his words out because he was he's very nervous about like talking to media and, and stuff like that and now like you talk to him and he's a very mild-mannered but so much more confident and it's just really cool to see that I that kind of growth and, and I guess growing up because he is a young man in his early 20s after all and I think that that sort of really seeing that kind of evolution over the past couple of years and particularly being thrown in at the deep end with Red Bull mid-season and how he's kind of just taken to it all pretty chilled out and, and done really well I think that bodes really well so I think that this is a big sort of curveball that's being thrown at him it's a, a very difficult car but I I think that looking at the signs from the last couple of years he will be able to bounce back from it
4: yeah we're not hearing the same sort of things from the Red Bull garage as we did dare we say at this time last year when we, we were hearing that Pierre Gasly was constantly wanting new seats, like he wanted the seat position changed, he wanted the pedal positions changed, he was being hugely high maintenance about every aspect of the car and and, and they sort of felt that he was getting distracted by silly little things and not actually focusing on the big picture and it seems like Alex album is, is very focused on, on the big picture and isn't just getting himself distracted by uh, lunatic, time-consuming changes to car configuration.
1: Well, one driver who does know what it's like to go up against Max Verstappen and beat him on occasion is Daniel Ricciardo. Now at Renault, of course, uh, I thought I had a, a rather good race today. Uh, Luke, what did you what did you think of Ricciardo's drive? I think um, actually rather rather showed up his teammate, the highly rated Esteban Ocon, who was who was rather nowhere.
5: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I thought it was a, a very good driver. They they really did extend out that medium tire stint um, in in the middle of the race, but it, it worked really, really well. I managed to get the jump uh, on a few cars, so end up in that in that train uh, train of cars that was building at one point behind uh, Charles Leclerc as he was uh, crying out to be brought into the pits and and change tires. But no, I think a, a very good performance. I mean, Renault this weekend they weren't we, we saw in qualifying yesterday. They they were really struggling. So to come away with yeah four points in the bag, I think that's a pretty pretty decent result um, and a big gap to Ocon as you said. And I think that Renault sort of looking forward like Ocon, he's he's got he's got what a few seasons of experience in F one. But when you see a driver like Daniel Ricciardo really sort of show him up like that, I think that's that really shows that they do need an experienced head and someone who has that sort of star quality to lead the team forward, which they'll obviously hope Fernando Alonso can can bring back to the team. Uh, but no, I thought yeah, very decent display from him today.
4: There was a big difference in the body language between the two of them in their sort of double stacked press conferences is, you know, one driver vacates the seat, the other one comes in after a swift sanitization and, and that was basically the story of their race, wasn't it? It was that first pit stop where they double stacked them and that pretty much screwed Ocon's race. But
1: nevertheless, as he says, a weekend to forget because he wasn't exactly making... Great progress up the order in, in you know, against the cars that were probably slower than the Renault. And um, but, John, why don't before we just go, we're going to look ahead briefly to the to the British Grand Prix? But I wanted to end on McLaren. An interesting race this one for McLaren because there was no 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 starring qualifying drive as we saw in the two races in Austria, first from Norris and then from Science. Nor was there a, an amazing last lap charge this time from Lando Norris. But it's interesting to hear the team sort of suggesting that they basically qualified where they really expected the car to be, and actually Ferrari is. Just that step ahead, and that he was only, you know, only the superb efforts of the drivers in those opening two races. And then, actually, if you look at Norris's result, he also had a very tough start, and that's really what the difference was. Though it was interesting to note, he made a good launch. It was just the second phase when, you know, that was really where he sort of bogged down and lost ground to everybody else. So, yeah, what, what did you make of McLaren this weekend, John?
3: Yeah, I think think fairly spot on. I think we've seen a more representative picture of teams this weekend. The fact it was, it was very two by two, um you, you know, at the front, I think Albon you know, wasn't up there because he'd had those problems in Q2. Um, but it was quite a, quite a, a, an ordered grid of teams being very close to each other. And I think that Ferrari, you know, were off very off the pace in Austria because the straights, 0.7 seconds, which dropped them back into the pack. Um, they, they were better here. And that midfield is so ridiculously competitive that one or two temps is the difference between, you know, being a hero and, challenging and being at the front of that pack and being dumped into the middle of it uh and I think it's just a classic the second you're in you're in that pack the second you're racing other cars you can't manage your own pace your tires are going off worse than they were before and events just spiral out of control really so you know I think there's are still at, at the front edge of that um midfield pack on certain racetracks you know they'll probably be ahead of Ferrari certain racetracks they'll probably be behind them I think they've got to keep consistency, not make mistakes in pit stops, just keep bringing the points home basically because you know, I don't think they're going to be anywhere close to Mercedes or Racing Point. Uh, I'm not sure many people are going to be, but um, I think they can you know, definitely target fourth, fourth in the constructors. Feels like track
4: position is going to be very, very important this year. I mean, you look at... The, the the queue that was building up behind Leclerc when he was on those soft tyres and then how quickly that queue ceased to be a queue and just Constantine it out again once he'd pitted out of the way.
1: We should we should actually move on to our last topic because Codders, you're in near darkness on our. Uh,
4: Do on you want me to turn stage. the light on?
1: Uh, I mean uh, only only if it would help you. That's just to, just to let listeners know. Yes, uh, Codders, I'll actually
4: be can. able to read my notes now from my <laughs>
1: notebook. All, all we could see for the listeners was just sort of Codders' face lit up by the light of his computer screen, which is quite amusing. But anyway. Anyway. Gradually Luke,
4: disappearing into the, as, as the sun sets.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, Luke, coming to you. Uh, we go to a, a sort of another different type of track in Silverstone. It's, it's much higher speed than we would see at the Hungawa Ring, Longer than the Red Bull Ring, and it's sort of much more of a mix of, of corners uh, at Silverstone. Any chance Mercedes aren't going to continue their perfect start? No, nope. I, I doubt it.
5: <laughs> no. Nope. No, like, absolutely not. Uh, no, I think we're going to track what, what Lewis has won five of the last six years. So it's just yeah, we know we know what we're going to get, and I think Mercedes will just continue to continue to dominate as they have done so far this season hopefully we can see uh, Valtteri Bottas really take the fight to Hamilton I think that would be a a really cool battle to see between the two of them because well, I guess we've maybe not really seen much of a a scrap between them so far this year obviously we had the opening race where Hamilton was able to make some good inroads before the safety car and that kind of spoiled any spice we might get between them in that battle so that's what I would really like to see I would love to see the two of them going wheel to wheel fighting it out Um, they had a lovely scrap there last year so hopefully a repeat that would be really cool to see Uh, I think as John said earlier that Red Bull this might work a little bit more to their advantage because there's sort of more of these sort of medium speed corners, um, not so worried about sort of the slower stuff. Uh, And then Ferrari, I think it could be quite a difficult weekend, but uh, that is probably going to be the tale of their season when you do get to these uh, higher power places.
3: I think what could be interesting at Silverstone is Racing Point. Um, I think those two cars are running at different, slightly different downforce levels, slightly different performance characteristics over a lap. We heard Toto reference the fact that, some corners in Hungary the the racing point was quicker. So we saw a few years ago, remember when Williams were leading at Silverstone in the early phase and then um didn't maximize their strategy opportunities and uh didn't quite turn it into a win. But you know there could be a scenario where those cars qualify near the front, get a good start or first lap and can be challenging. And I think that would that would be fascinating for everyone just to just to see. I still want to see what this racing point can do at the front of the grid if they qualify near those Mercedes
4: well we've seen Sergio Perez sort of challenging for a win before it was 8 years ago so hopefully he'll rediscover that mojo and it would be interesting and certainly for Lawrence Stroll it would certainly be a return in his investment wouldn't it
1: yeah, worth keeping an eye, as ever, on the racing point, uh, whether the car's legal or whether there's going to be a driver change. Do you stick for autosport.com and motorsport.com? We'll be bringing you all the news as it breaks, as it happens, and whatever we find out. Uh, but John, I just wanted to throw you a last question. After three weeks on the road, or maybe even a little bit more than that,
3: how desperate are you to get home? Massively. Two weeks on the roads normally normally right. We, we do a lot of back-to-backs. They did one triple header uh, before I didn't, I didn't do that that year, actually, but... That was quite knackering. It's been quite intense. And I think it's more intense because, you know, we are in a bubble and we are contained. So days are spent inside the media centre. We came to Hungary, you know, one of the greatest European cities, which is normally fantastic for restaurants or bars or going out, getting fresh air, seeing things. And we've been, you know, kept inside. So I think there's a lot of people with cabin fever. The Weekends are quite stressful as well. The, The tests, the COVID tests aren't particularly nice. Then you get your test done. Then the stress is that night, what if it is positive? And you get a phone call at seven in the morning, to say it's positive, or you get to track, sat down at your desk, and then a bunch of people in hazmat suits come in and march you out. So there's all this extra added stress. And, you know, you didn't want to be the first person in Formula One who got confirmed as positive and risked derailing the weekend or causing a huge kerfuffle. You just want to keep your head down and stay anonymous and stuff. So there's this added element to a. Uh, to a Grand Prix. Normally, the stress of Hungary is, you know, will I get a good seat on the plane and will we make it to the restaurant by eight o'clock? But this year police checks and COVID tests and am I positive or am I negative and staying inside and can I get food and can I get water so there's an extra element to all so I'm looking forward to going home eating some nice food and getting some fresh air but we
1: must bring this podcast to a close thank you very much you guys for joining us and thank you everybody for listening now just before we go we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and is available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents as well as on the doormats of subscribers It'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash trilomusic. Music.
2: Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. And if you've got the eye of a detective, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery adventure as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. With more than a thousand scenes filled with clues, there's always something new to discover. You may even trek across the globe for your next lead. Every week, new chapters are added with new characters to meet and places to search. Plus, there are tons of fun, unique features to keep you entertained. From building your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings to collecting scraps of information on each character to fill your photo album. You can even play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices, as well as on PC through Facebook games.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: (sighs) Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino.